Hello, and welcome to Shelf Love, a podcast about romance novels and how they reflect, explore, challenge, and shape desire. I'm your host, Andrea Martucci, and on this episode, I am sharing the recording from Black Romance and Historical Spaces, which was a presentation put on by the Center for Black Diaspora at DePaul University on November 5th, 2022, with speakers Elizabeth Grace, aka Margot Hendricks, and Katrina Jackson, aka Nicole Jackson. Romance scholar Julie Moody Freeman is the director for the Center for Black Diaspora Studies at DePaul University, and she is also the host of Black Romance Podcast. So this episode is a co-release with Black Romance Podcast. If you haven't checked out Black Romance Podcast yet, I encourage you to do so. It is currently on hiatus, but there are amazing episodes from season one and two featuring conversations with Black writers, editors, and scholars of historical and contemporary popular romance fiction. So I want to say thank you to Julie for giving me the opportunity to share this with all of you on the Shelf Love podcast feed and also for creating the opportunity for those of you who are not able to make this presentation to hear it or read it on the transcript, which you can find on my website. So this event was called Black Romance and Historical Spaces, Black Romance Authors in Conversation. Join Black Romance authors Katrina Jackson and Elizabeth Grace as they discuss writing Black historical romance. The authors will engage the question of readerly and publishing perceptions about the place of African slash African diaspora love in historical spaces. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation. You don't want to miss the cameos from Ms. Beverly Jenkins herself, who came up as a topic of conversation, but also happened to be in attendance. And so it was such a pleasure to hear from her as well in this presentation. Good morning, everybody. I am Julie Moody Freeman. Welcome to the Center for Black Diaspora. Behind me is the library, and if you were on campus, this is what you would see. So I wanted you to get a feel of the library. And I also wanted to hide the mess in my office. So <laughs> thank you all for being here so early. Welcome to Black Romance and Historical Spaces. Thanks. Well, we have Margot Hendricks and Katrina Jackson. However, let us change names now because we have Elizabeth Grace here, right, Margaret Hendricks, and we have Nicole Jackson, who is a professor, but coming in as her writer herself, Katrina Jackson. So before I do my intro to Elizabeth Grace and Katrina Jackson, I want to quickly thank two people who helped to make this event possible, Jennifer Ogwamiki, who was, I say was because she has graduated, she got her bachelor's, but she was the Center for Black Diaspora's student researcher and coordinator. And before she left, she made sure everything was in place or promoting. So thank you. Good morning, Tasha. Good morning. I would also like to thank somebody who has been so instrumental in helping us put this together, and it's Catherine Douglas. She is the administrative assistant for the Department of African and Black Diaspora Studies that delivers the curriculum and the Center for Black Diaspora that delivers programming, any type of scholarship. So Catherine, I am so grateful for your amazing help. Thank you. So let me talk very quickly, I'll do quick introductions, and, and then we'll get started. I'm going to start with Elizabeth Grace. So when she's not writing romance, Margot is also professor. Elizabeth Grace writes paranormal, 
contemporary and historical romances where love and HEAs accept no impediments. Her stories and characters are diverse, sensual, and occasionally wicked. She is a native Californian and professor emerita of English in Shakespeare and early modern English literature and culture. And she's the author of a four book paranormal series, Daughters of Saria, contemporary series, Midsummer Sisters series, Elizabethan Mischief, spy romance set in the age of Elizabeth I and other books that I have not mentioned. An associate professor of history, Katrina Jackson is a college history professor by day who writes romances by weekend when her cats allow. She writes high heat, diverse, and mostly queer erotic romances and erotica. She writes racially diverse and often queer stories that show love and the world in all its beauty and colors. So a few of her novels, I'm a little biased because I have some favorites here. I'm sure you all have your favorites from Scratch, Office Hours, The Hitman, Encore, Grand Theft, New Year's Eve, among others, as well as her historical fiction, The Tenant and Back in the Day. So thank you all for being here with us early this morning. And I will hand you over to Elizabeth Reagan and Katrina Jackson. Thank you. Good morning. All right. I have my mimosa here. I have it here. Because seven o'clock in the morning is like an ungodly hour. Look, it's 10 o'clock and this is ungodly for me. Yeah, well, honey, I would send this to you, but Red X doesn't come out my way too long. So what I want to do first before we actually start is to just give a little background to how this evolved and during the conversation, Katrina can, you know, keep me focused. We've been kvetching <laughs> with each other for a while about just the way in which history slash histories function within romance, historical romance literature. And I will always call it literature. So if you can't, that's on you, but take it from me, it is literature. We write literature and specifically the way in which Black historical romance is often treated, negated and ignored by traditional publishers and by a certain strand of a large strand of historical romance readers. The expectations are four to five times higher. We often get and we get it in our academic arenas as well that the number of African-descended people or African people in European and colonial spaces who weren't enslaved was a small number. The people presumed that most African-descended and African people were enslaved, which is not always the case. In fact, which wasn't the case until slavery became truly a capitalistic endeavor. So we spent time talking about this. Just so you know, every historical romance that I've written and self-published was first submitted to a traditional publisher. Got feedback and rejected. Liked the story, didn't know what to do with it, couldn't get into the voice, couldn't get into the characters or any of that. Rejections. So self-publishing was the way to go for me 
with my historical romances. I will not write anything post 1700. I refuse to, simply because I think there needs to be an awareness that Black lives, Black love, Black romance ex has existed as long as Black people have been on this planet. And we've been on this planet far longer than most people. So this is kind of how the conversation got started. And of course, me being me said, we need to do something. And I reached out to Professor Moody Freeman and the Center for Black Diaspora and asked if we could have a conversation, not do a presentation, but just have a conversation, because this is something that we need to talk about, both within the context of Black historical romance and Black romance in general, but also in a way that doesn't become pedantic, although occasionally we will slip into our professorial modes. We will endeavor to stay as much in our romance authorship roles, but sometimes it's hard. So that being said, what I would like to do, and as people come in, hopefully you'll get caught up, what I like to do is to ask Katrina to talk about her training and her relationship to bringing that training into Black romance. So good morning, everyone. So I, I have a PhD in African-American and African diaspora history, and which was a trial by fire <laughs> in and of itself getting that degree. But my particular area is a, I'm a post-World War II historian. So most of my work is actually in the 19, late 60s, 70s, and 80s, which is history. And just as a reminder, and I went into graduate school wanting to study activists. I'm, I thought that was like really fascinating history. I'm from Oakland and I grew up surrounded by really the remnants of the Black Panther Party, which sort of shaped how I understood the world and history. I also, my high school, for whatever reason, they spent a lot of time organizing and protest action. So it was very common for us to walk out and strike for, you know, kind of any little thing. But so I understood social activism as something that was significant. And I ended up in graduate school just wanting to study that and thinking I would write a sort of classic kind of hard hitting project on and social activists. And instead, what I ended up writing about was family and community and love. So the beginning of my dissertation started with a conversation about what it meant for Black people to love one another in a movement and how love became central to how Black people understood the world and how they fought for the world. And which was not the goal. <laughs> that was definitely not the plan, but it was really hard to study what I studied and to look at the people I was looking at and not think about the sacrifices they made willingly for these people that they loved, that they, many of them that they birthed, some they didn't. I mean, it was just, love was kind of everywhere. At the same time, I started reading romance and then writing romance. And so for me, like in the historical context and in the present moment, like love was story in and of itself. There was you could have so many conversations about things that I value and still have a romantic arc and love relationships kind of centered in that as well. So that's how I ended up here, I think. <laughs> Thank you. As for me, a few of you know, I'm trained to do what was called Renaissance 
and early modern English literature. It has shifted to early modern English studies, although the interdisciplinarity is still not fully there. I primarily worked on issues of gender and sexuality. I managed to work race into my dissertation by focusing on 20th century British and American theater. So I come to romance as a reader prior to my academic career, but not really thinking about it as something that I would want to write because I wanted to write plays and be like Alice Childress and Lorraine Hansberry. That failed, but I think I discovered my calling. Katrina reminded me that I am of that generation. I lived in Oakland in the 60s and early 70s and then returned home to Riverside. I am a California girl. And so I don't think of it as history because I lived it, but I need to think of it as history because I lived it. So I'm working on that one. My aim throughout my academic career and with my romance writing has always been to ground Black people's lives and how images of Black people were constructed in the early modern period. And that through my own work and other people's work in the archives, reading between the lines, thinking differently about how we approach those texts and how we read them and how we study them, we can get a slightly better picture. We were forced to fight a battle to make race an issue in the 16th century because as everyone knew, and many people still believe, race is a 19th century construct or even a late 18th century construct. Race began with the enlightenment not any time earlier. So I spent a lot of time working on that as an academic. That experience seeps into what I write as a romance author. However, as someone who was first a, a literary historian in terms of how literature wanted to justify what we did to historians, I felt that historians didn't take seriously their own many in the early modern period didn't take seriously their principles about writing history, histories, and the nuances of historical space, which is how we are here for me at 7.30 in the morning and for the rest of you at 10, or 7.13 or therein, and the rest of you at 7.14. So I think there are enough people in the room where we can go ahead and get started. I guess the important question for Correct me if I'm wrong, Katrina, I'm going to try to put words in your mouth right now. The important question is why we need to have this conversation. Both of us wanted to encourage people to consider how they use history, to ask what is history, to engage more critically the fallacy of authenticity. That is, somehow we can construct an authentic, a real history around an event, around a person, around a nation, around the people. We even want to question the authenticity of Black historical experience. For both of us, and for many people, and we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Beverly Jenkins, but we need to raise her. Because for many people... We could, though. We could talk about... Ms. We could talk about her for days. I mean, literally, we can. There may be, at the end, a little bit of conversation about this, but 
one of the things that both of us wanted to grapple with, maybe we could start off with this, is the idea of an authentic Black historical romance genre in which Beverly Jenkins is the center, is the one, as if Black people didn't exist historically before or after that amazing, that extraordinary canon of historical writing that she has gifted us with, and which has created in many readers' minds a sense of an authentic Black historical experience. One of the issues that I think, and feel free to jump in and interrupt me, I think we both came to is that there's so much writing against the grain of a notion of an authentic Black romance experience in Ms. Jenkins' writings that people miss, Yes, that we felt needed to be talked about, needed to be addressed. Jump in now because you know me, I'll talk. And as this takes hold, I'm starting to relax a little bit. I think, so in a conversation I had with Ms. Bev about her career for Lucy Eden's magazine, we talked about how a lot of her work actually is clustered in the Reconstruction era. And it's such a like wonderful moment in history that is also full of so many pitfalls. And I really love that she manages to, to find so stories to tell in that sort of moment. Not all her stories are clustered there, but especially recently, a lot of her stories have been there. And it's just, she manages to, to look at a time period from so many different angles. Mm -hmm. and. For me, that's like, you know, each book is like a masterclass in possibility. And yet when we look around, especially now for other Black historical romance, it doesn't quite exist, right? And some of that I think is related to, as I've heard people talk about this fear of having to deal with slavery. And then in other ways, there is this fear of having to deal with the 20th century as well. And it's not as if Ms. Bev is only writing in this period where everything is hunky-dory. Actually, so many things are slipping away. I mean, yeah. you chart the sort of rise into Black citizenship and rights, and then also the loss of those rights in actually many of her books. But yeah, so it is, and I've said this over and over again, one of the saddest things that I think is actually indicative of the fact that traditional publishing doesn't value Black historical romance is that we do not have an, another Miss Bev. And to be clear about that, because I have said that before and gotten pushback, there is no other Black author of historical romance who only writes Black couples. There yeah. is no other author exactly. who, who exists in that space. And that is a shame. And that would be such a beautiful place to build on her legacy while she's here. And that has not happened. And there is still so much history to tell. We love your writing, Miss Bev. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> and you are an inspiration. I, I, okay, I'm like, okay, everybody, let's, I'm going to fangirl here for one second. <laughs> me, it, when I decided to write Elizabethan Mischief, because that for me is the Black romance, historical Black romance that I wrote. My other books, that are set in the same era deal with a multicultural spectrum. And by all appearances, they appear to be interracial. Although if you actually scratch the genealogy, every one of my heroes has a Black ancestor. And if you understand the nature of the one drop rule, it would be 
no problem to pick up on kind of the little Easter eggs that I've dropped in my paranormal series, especially my contemporary romances are Black couples, but they're not historical. When I came to write Elizabethan Mischief, I know the history of Black people in the 16th and 17th century in London. I know the history of Black people in English colonial spaces who were enslaved. I know for a fact that there are love stories. I know for a fact that slave owners attempted to write that love out of history, but actually ended up recording it in some of their documents and their letters and their reports as they try to separate couples where they deliberately engaged in the separation of families, in a destabilization of community. So my goal in writing Elizabethan Mischief was to effectively show how much Miss Bev's writing had influenced me to capture a different kind of history for Black romance, one that wasn't predicated on a Black woman falling in love with a non-Black male and living happily ever after. One that was predicated on, which I do write about, it's not like it's an issue, but one that was predicated on engaging a historical space where Black people lived, loved, worked, died, and their history is recorded. So- And that's like the, that becomes the problem, right? That like the, when we talk about the lack of Black historical romance, the assumption is that Black people did not either live in those spaces, they lived in those spaces, but did not find one another, did not want to be with one another in those spaces, or they had to leave. And it is, especially for me, I cannot think of, of of a more disrespectful way of understanding the broadness of history, right? And I think England becomes a really great space for looking at that, which is why I was really excited when you told me about Elizabethan mischief. The assumptions, so many of the assumptions people make about historical romance set in England is that, of course, this person had to have a white partner because that's all. Those were the only sort of options, which is untrue, or that they wanted to you know, move up the sort of social ladder, which is not necessarily true, or that those were bonds of love, right, only. And I'm like, well, that also is not necessarily true. And it is, I think as a historian, especially, it is the lack of attention and care for detail and also for the humanity of these people. I've said this before, that one of the things that really frustrates me about books set in England is that there uh, with uh, Black characters is that we never really see authors attend to the things that Black characters lose, right? When they are in either that space or in sort of social spaces in terms of class where they are one of a few or the only one. There is a loss there. And we never attend to the loss. So when we are talking about someone like a ditto bell, we know what she loses. Yes. She loses her mother to have the sort of fairy tale that we tell on screen and that Ama Asante told in that, that movie 
she lost her mother. She, I mean, and that is very clear, right? So if you aren't going to attend to the, which as a historian, I am trained to do, right? And it's still a practice, but if you aren't going to attend to the emotional lives of the characters and to the ways in which they have to either, they either are ripped from parts of their lives or those are ripped from them, then we aren't really doing the work, right? We aren't really talking about the representation of, of Black people. We're not talking about their subjectivity. This is one of the things that drives me crazy because the presumption that we don't have community, the presumption that we don't have family, the presumption that we don't love each other, that there's a natural inclination to be part of a community that is familiar, that has roots, that has connections. That's not represented when we sever our Black subjects. The other issue, it is so rare to see in historical romances, Black males represented with dignity. We can go there. I'm going to qualify this. <laughs> Pre-1800, Regency, etc. We just don't. Yeah, we're going there because you know me and I've been drinking. But it is one of the things, again, this is conversation that Katrina and I have had, you know, on the side, we look at, you know, Piper Hughley's representations of Black males. We look at Miss Bebb's representation of Blackness. We have the models there. So there's no reason that respect for Black subjectivity can't take place, that we need to stop thinking of a homogenous idea of Blackness that fails completely. The myriad experiences of African-descended people, what they bring together, what they retain, the sense that there is a monolith in terms of what we can represent, and it's only based on a single notion called slavery. So I had this professor in grad school. I was his TA. And we, so I regularly teach like modern US history. We start at reconstruction. I've somehow reconstruction is like the, yeah. the central like focus of my like teaching career, even though it is not the focus of my research life. But this professor was fantastic because for the first time I had taken modern US with like other professors, but he was the first time I took it with a black professor trained in African-American history. And he asked his students like, you know, we went through the whole, like, this is what happens in reconstruction legally and da, 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 da. And then he asked the students and me, what do formerly enslaved people want out of their lives now that they are free? And I was close to the end of my PhD. And this was the very first time I had ever been asked to think about what the formerly enslaved wanted out of their freedom at the end of the civil war. And so his students and I were like, that's a great question. We have no, <laughs> we, we do not, we do not have answers for that. And then he walked it, he walked us through all of that. And what stuck with me, and this is still how I teach that class to my own students a decade later, what stuck to, with me is that the very first thing freed people wanted was to legalize marriages that had existed long before they were legally allowed to marry. 
And I, first of all, I almost broke down and crying in class when he said that, <laughs> but it totally changed the way that I ended up teaching about like the conceptualization of freedom because so often we are focused on legally what Black people can or cannot do. And we do not ask what they do anyway, right? As property, enslaved people could not legally marry. And yet they jumped that broom anyway. And yet when they were separated by miles and sometimes death, they still honored those relationships. So I actually ran downstairs right before we started to get what is my like break, like reading. <laughs> I can't wait to call you my oh wife. My, yes. And I'm like, have been just absolutely obsessed with this, with as many records as we can, as historians, as we can gather about how important family and marriage and parenthood was to enslaved and formerly enslaved people. Because so often the stories we think we cannot tell in terms of their romantic lives hinge not on what Black people wanted to do, but what they were legally not allowed to do, which those are two different questions. Yeah. For me, working in the 16th or 17th century, it's a little bit different in terms of England because there are a lot of people who will point to Elizabeth's first proclamation ordering the deportation, which I like the fact that word is used of Black Moors, Negars, and Moors from England because they have grown so great in number. It's a complicated document. People read it, I feel, very strongly simplistically because the underpinning of it is also the rise of immigrants from Protestant countries fleeing Catholic oppression and settling in England, a Protestant nation, and the impact that has on the economy because many of them were coming in as weavers, as merchants, as, and so on. But this particular document was done at the behest of someone who saw an opportunity to traffic in slavery to, because England came to the transatlantic slave trade a little bit later than Spain and Portugal. England needed to establish its colonies first in order to do that. So the idea that there weren't Black people present is a myth. The idea that they were all in one location and could be easily rounded up was also a myth because there are records of Black people living in places like Bristol, in places like Plymouth, in places like York. So they're scattered throughout, and Wales and Scotland, they're scattered throughout what we call the United Kingdom. And yet there's a perception of non-existence. The question for me as a graduate student and as when I was doing my writing, was how could literature be a way for me to think about how ideologies are constructed? Why is it Black people are represented as full of passion, full of emotions, et cetera, the baser side of human nature, in quotes, so that whiteness could be constructed as a model of for lack of a better term, of perfection. It is important for me to grapple with that legacy in my academic work. It's also important for me within my historical writing, historical romance writing, to debunk that notion that 
we don't need to lean on the construction of whiteness in order to represent blackness. We don't, because it's there in front of us. We see it, that legacy, that history that's been around since the first African was transported in an enslaved condition and had a family and generations. We see it, we know about that, okay? So for me, that's been an important part of what it is that I seek to do is to in effect redirect the white gaze or shut it off as much as possible. It's hard to completely shut it off because we live in it, but to redirect it or to shut it off while you're reading my books. One of the things, and we are gonna leave some time for Q&A. One of the things that Katrina said that just hit home with me. And okay, so what you need to understand is I really wanted to just question Katrina. So that's why we're doing this. So I'll try to talk a little bit, but I really just love talking to a historian. They just make my day historians as opposed to pseudo historians in joke <laughs> of the black experience who we were talking is we were talking about just this whole question of how people engage the authenticity of history etc and she dropped this lovely little bomb that I'm going to write about in a different way that historical romance we need to see historical romance as a fantasy Remember that one? You don't? Well, I'm gonna bring you back to it because it stayed with me, the whole idea that there's a way in which the perception of authenticity makes historical romances real. So that there's 6,000 dukes running around looking good with fine teeth, fine limbs and being able to fuck their way across England and not impregnate someone in the 18th century when many of them didn't want to use a condom even though they were available. And yet people will buy that. Yeah. All right. And so if, okay, so that was a rather crude of me, but it's the true point though. is, yes. It's true though. I think that's actually the, yeah, there is this, so I mean, and there are like people in here who will be better able to talk about this than me, including you, but like the idea of romance, especially historical romance as a fantasy, somehow the minute you put Black people in there, the fantasy cannot exist, which mm. is, I think, it is what it is, right? I mean, there you could unpack that forever. But the part that always frustrates me is that we're talking, people who are usually saying that are people who are making their living uh, as creatives, right? Yes. So the, uh, the possibility for creativity somehow extends right up until you talk about Black people loving one another in a moment where the world is against them. And, you know, the jerk in me wants to point out there is no moment where the world is not against black people. So you can do yes. whatever you want, but more importantly, and this, and I do have a, a literature background, which is maybe why we get along in that. Like I came to history actually through like literature class, mm -hmm. but especially if you have even read, not even deeply, but just shallowly in classic black literature, yes. all you see are black people imagining possibilities. Right. Yes. 
whether that is, you know, together in, in romance, whether that is sex, because it was writing about that too, mm-hmm. that is, you know, the possibilities for the end of slavery, for, you know, Black self-determination. I mean, they are writing about possibilities over and over again. So that we have so many literary examples of possibilities, but then we also have the same thing in history, which is a thing I'm always trying to point out, you know, to my students. If you don't have an enslaved population that can imagine freedom, they die. I mean, I just cannot stress that enough. If you do not have a population that can imagine freedom, they would die under the weight of enslavement. Yes. That they do not die, that some of them decide to procreate because it is a decision, right? Mm-hmm. That is a hope for the freedom, for the future, and for freedom in the future. And there's so much there that you can use to pull out a really beautiful story. And yet, when romance authors and readers are talking about writing Black people in historical spaces where they are statistical, you know, maybe majorities or at least a significant statistical population, it is as if even the hint of slavery robs them of possibility. And that is heartbreaking. And it's wrong. It's also wrong. (laughs) It's wrong. Okay, it's wrong. If you walk away from this, it's wrong. Because to reiterate, there is no way Black people would have survived if they didn't have imagination, if they didn't believe in their freedom, if they refused to fight for it, even in the most subtle ways. If you haven't read Elizabethan Initiative, my, one of my main characters, both my main characters, but one of them specifically, kills her grandfather. All right, her family, not because he was a dickhead, but for family, there were enslaved people who were doing that. There were enslaved people who were resisting. If the only story you can tell about enslaved people from the basically from the 16th century forward is that they wore their chains willingly, which is a myth that they didn't resist, that they didn't hold on to the bonds that managed their subjectivity, that gave them their subjectivity, their humanness. If you cannot write that, then stay out of historical romance, in my opinion. And don't write Black people in your historical romances. Yeah, I went there because Honestly, you're doing your Black characters a disservice if their whole existence is framed by enslavement. What about the mothers? What about the brothers? What about the children? So many of those communities exist within enslavement. They also existed without. And we need to recognize that there were Black communities in early America that existed. They went further west, got away from those enslaving colonizers and formed their own communities, formed bonds with native peoples. What's going on? Why isn't that history part of what you're telling? There's a way in which you have 
no. There's a way in which the lens of white supremacy has colored and continues to color how we represent Black people within historical romance. And I think we need to do it. This extends to the Caribbean and to Africa. I was actually going to make that point that this is also why I find it so depressing that more people are resisting me reminding y'all the 1970s or history. Because (laughs) if what you want is to write a story about Black people that is not in a moment of slavery, then write in the 20th century, right? And even in that context, I mean, I in particular, I'm a Black British historian. So a lot of what I study is the movement of Caribbean people to the UK, in particular from the British Caribbean, but I also just study Black people who move. Like that yeah. is literally what I am fascinated by. So I also study Black Southerners who move to the West, of which Margo and I are both the descendant of Southerners who moved to California. And again, I had another professor in graduate school who pointed this out to us that like if you want to look at black people's agency see where they go see where they don't go right and when you start looking at that it opens up the possibility right like you have all of the I mean the fact that I have not gotten I mean I'm saying this like I'm gonna cuss someone in particular out and I don't but the fact that no one has given me a pan-African romance is quite literally rude because the way that like black people all over uh, the Atlantic are moving around looking for freedom, thinking mm-hmm. about talking about Africa, right? Talking about black mm-hmm. self-determination. You need to write um, it. And if you need a man in a suit, let me tell you about them Garveyites, right? Like, oh they Lord have mercy. <laughs> they were like, this is pageantry. Like there is just so much like in that in 20th century history. And so again, the fact that like we aren't seeing, I mean, I think we're even seeing traditional publishing moving away from like the Western romance, which would have been a space, problematic as it was, which would have been a space where you could get more diverse histories and historical romance. And they are just refusing to engage with the 20th century as a moment rife with like historical possibilities. Just heartbreaking. Okay, you need to write it. No, hold on. I was... Yeah, no. <laughs> All right, we move on to the next topic. One of the things that someone keep me posted on time because there is a question I want to raise, which will allow us to move into. The You're room. doing good, Marco. You're doing okay. good. <laughs> All right. So one of the things that we talked about a little bit was the idea of when writers come to write black representation within historical romances. And Katrina touched on it earlier, is the connection, is the theme of broken connections. And I said, well, I actually kind of asked the question and made the statement that what is the authorial purpose behind this? And then I went, is it an integrationist, assimilationist, isolationist? Is that the only way Black subjectivity can be represented. And then what we miss from these thematic representations, the thing that I'm seeing occur again in traditional historical romance, and we're not gonna talk about historical fiction, black historical fiction, because that's a different space of writing. And to be honest with you, it's much more diverse. Like a lot of what we're like, oh, I wish we could get this in historical romance. If you're willing to read something with no HEA, you can find almost anything you want in historical. Yes. 
Yes, but the sense that somehow, and again, this happens mostly with Black women, most likely mixed race, this idea of A, not belonging. And I, for me, that seems to run counter to my understanding of, black, of Blackness, that the sense of belonging to this community, regardless of what you look like, you know, that if there's Blackness in you anywhere, even if it's not on the surface, you belong to the Black community. And I don't have an answer for that particular thematic, this type of writing that I'm seeing, but I'm becoming more and more concerned about it within historical romance, traditionally published and even self-published, of the need to construct Black protagonists, primarily women, in isolation from a community that the only way for them to become, quite honestly, human, in quotes, is to join this white community, to assimilate, to not even integrate. It's more assimilation. It's to assimilate into this community. And it's a worry of mine because in effect, and it gets cast as Black romance, which I'm going to, you know, when I join the ancestors, I'm going to be screaming that is not Black romance, that there are expectations being promised to the reader that when you write Black romance, that you're also giving us the wholeness of the characters. How come we can write white protagonists fully with family, whether it's fraud or not? They leave a family, they return to the family, et cetera. But what about our Black protagonists in historical romances? And I just want to put that out there for us to think about, because I honestly see an assimilationist move about what's happening to Black protagonists, especially women. It's a, uh, yeah, I think, and I think so much could be said, again, this could be its own hour. But again, this is one of those moments where one Ms. Bev has given us a really good sort of roadmap. Like, I, I just don't understand. I mean, I've talked about this, I could talk about this forever, but yeah. in Forbidden, the fact that she has a character, one, a man, right? I mean, she is yes. quite literally turning the idea, the sort of narrative of the tragic mulatto on his head, first of all. But she has a, a man who can pass and his HEA is that he doesn't. Yes. Just cannot stress to you enough that like that is revolutionary on its own. What she has told you, right? And then when he shows up again, the contentment. Like when yes. you meet Ryan in yes. Forbidden, the man is out here, uh, blowing a light. Like it is, yes. it, right? But when you see him again and later, but oh my gosh, yes. he is like, he has grown old. He is comfortable and like yeah. happy. And that tells you something, right? Like what we, what she is telling us and what others, you know, what other writers have written around is that, you know, whatever, however you want to sort of deal with kind of passing as a possibility, right? Or as a historical reality, like it comes down to characterization. Yes. And so if you have a character who is passing and is isolated from their blackness. I mean, you really have to think about what you're doing there, right? What, why that is the particular story you have to tell to, to get at, you know, whatever the goal is, right? And then also 
why that HEA doesn't ever work, doesn't give them back that this is what I was talking about earlier, right? They have lost something, right? Yes. Like in having to piece themselves apart racially to, to separate themselves from their blackness and their black community, which could be anything and everything. I mean, you know, Ryan is out here looking for good cooking, right? Like he is like, mm. Lord knows I just want some good food, right? Like I mean, that's telling you something about his urges and it is the loss at every single level of his life. Yeah. And he chooses, right, to lose like monetarily, right, in some ways for something that is much more valuable. And there are ways, so there are ways to write that story that are different, that sort of give us something different than the tragic mulatto story, but also too historically, right, when we're talking about, I mean, that does happen, right, where we see like biracial people who have children with white people and who whiten, I mean, it is literally called whitening, right, who whiten yes. their lineages over generations. Yes. That, that creates its own problems it is not the HEA that you imagine, right? Especially when we're thinking about, this happens a, a good deal in England actually, right? What it means for in the present day for someone to find out that they have a black ancestor, there is a cost there. Yes. <laughs> and I keep trying to remember this, this man's name, but um, you know, it'll come to me one day or I'll, I'll finally look it up. But you know, there's a present day sort of white family who found out they have a black ancestor from, I wanna say it's Liverpool. Um, mm -hmm. and there is literally only one member of that family who will speak publicly because he said the rest of my family refuses to acknowledge that this is a black man in our lineage. And that's a cost, right? And you have to attend to that. As well as the fact that one of the things that I love about Ryan and also my man Galen is they fully understood what passing meant to them. It was an act of liberation at a time when there was no liberation for Black people. And it was about the community. You know, Ryan saw himself working for the community. Some of the romances I've read there's none of that, it's a complete disconnect. So we do have to ask, what do we lose when we sculpt a novel, a romance based on the tragic mulatto? Because I don't see either Ryan or Galen as tragic mulattoes, all right? They see an economic reason, a political reason, a liberatory reason, for their passing and they choose to do so. And but, strategically, that's and the other thing too. I mean, that's what we're yes. losing, right? It's this yes. idea that like, oh, you know, we keep telling these stories and historical fiction does this as well. It's not just historical romance, yeah. but we keep telling these stories about, oh, this person just discovers they can pass one day and they're like, look how mm -hmm. lovely my life could be. I no. mean, I'm sure that happens. Like, I mean, that's what history will teach you. There's again, possibility everywhere, but, the stories we have of passing, right? Like one of the books on the list is about William and Ellen Craft. Ellen Craft was like, these people think I'm white. Me and my husband are going to freedom, right? She was just like, <laughs> she was like, let me put in a little bowler. And we are like, we are heading into freedom. It's a strategic understanding of yes. if whiteness has value, which it does, yes. how can I use it to free myself and my people? 
That yes. is what we see most often in the news. Yes, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to keep this going so that if there are questions, we have time. One of the things that I raised is what's the future of Black historical romance? Is it, these are questions that I shared with Katrina, just, you know, as provocative things for us to reflect on. Is it possible to break the 19th century hold of historical romance in general and with Black historical romance specifically to think about writing historical romances that run the gamut of Black people's historical lives, of Black people's histories that not only center the U.S., but, you know, the transatlantic Blackness that exists without engaging in what I'm going to call assimilationist historical romance. People in, you know, South America, people in the Caribbean, people in Africa whose lives were affected by the disruption to family models and whatnot. It requires some work, but there's stories out there. And we do that. The other question that came up for me was, in writing Black historical experiences, the only path Black historical fiction, which I mentioned a little early, treating romance as an afterthought are non-existent in people's lives. I mean, I don't think we can do that, thanks to Ms. Bev, but it seems we're not taking seriously the master class that she's teaching us. No. You know, well, some of us are trying to, we're still novices working on this, but folks, we need to start taking seriously our ability to write historical romances that center Black people's lives, Black people's experiences, Black people's communities without turning it into a kind of assimilationist, uplift, tragic mulatto, recuperative within white spaces type of narrative. That the HEA becomes, again, an afterthought. Is it possible for us to do that in a way where we don't where we don't diminish what most of us as black people know in our personal lives is the truth we've seen black love we've seen it historically you know we've seen it with our grandparents with our great grandparents we've seen it with our aunts we've seen it with our uncles our cousins etc we've seen it with our ancestors in the letters they may have left behind assuming they were you know literate we've seen them fight for literacy so they could leave their histories behind and talk about their communities their loves their families etc is it possible for us to do that in a space that says this is not a legitimate romance. This is not an authentic romance unless you privilege access. Last question. Is it possible? And I think the answer is yes, because Katrina's already answered this. Is it possible to write historical, Black historical romances with enslaved protagonists? A romance that doesn't divorce love and social condition. I think, so I think a lot of my answer answers to actually all those questions and kind of boil down to the same thing. And I, <laughs> I'm going to just echo Ms. Bev in the chat for saying it much more succinctly than I'm about to. 
yes, it's possible. I think all of it's possible. Like if there's nothing else like anyone takes from this is that like, if what you're looking for is inspiration from the historical record, everything is possible. I mean, I'm, I'm quite literally shocked at the things that are possible. So if that is where you are looking for inspiration, 100% is possible. And then I agree, will writers do it? And I think every now and then, you know, I'll talk to other writers about like, if they're thinking of a historical or whatever, and they think that it's daunting, which it is. I mean, I'm not going to pretend as if it's not. I think like, depending on the kind of book you want to write, like the plot or whatever, it can be really daunting. And also it's a new sub, if it's a new subgenre for you, it can be very difficult to do so. But if you are willing to research needlepoint from the 19 teens or, you know, whatever, like shipping, you know, roots from the 17th century, you can figure out if two Black people lived in, you know, New Jersey in like yes. 90, like, like you can, like whatever, you can figure it out, right? But if you have, so you have to be willing to do the work. And then I think the other part of that, which is actually quite important is like, who will then publish it? Cause I will say that I think every now and then, so if we're talking about trad pub, is it possible in trad pub from what I've seen right now? No, in my opinion, absolutely not. And I think that's short-sightedness. I've said this before. I will say this again until I see otherwise. I do not see traditional publishing as a space to do Mm -hmm. black historical romance that bucks at that 19th century hold, right? No, but if you're a self-published author or you're willing to be hybrid, First of all, you can do it, like, right? Because I mean, you are your boss in that sense, but also there's an audience for that, right? It mm-hmm. might take a little bit more time to find them. You might have to change your marketing, et cetera. But 100% it's possible. And if, and again, it's possible to find your audience. And with that, I want to open it up to questions. I just want to say that this has been a moment for me to just listen to Katrina talk history, maybe sneaky on my part, but I want to let her know how much I appreciate our conversations. She keeps me grounded. Okay, so how should we do the questions? I see a hand raised. So yes, let me ask Marjorie to unmute. Hi, everyone. I'm not turning on my camera because I am sick in bed today and I will spare you site, but I hail to you right now from St. Croix of the Great Caribbean, the unceded but still colonized lands of the Taino people of who greeted Columbus. So hello. And the question that I wanted to ask, Marco and Katrina, you hit a point that, that was like a punch to my gut as somebody who writes fiction in my spare time. And that is on the issue of imagination. Part of what slavery and colonization does deliberately is to capture or attempt to capture our imaginations. And the way in which it is successful is when it gets us to believe that certain things are not possible. So I think about some of the reception around the woman king, for example, and everybody screaming about how it's not authentic. And I'm like, what was the last time that a story came from Hollywood that was authentic? Are you kidding me, right? And hearing stories about how, gosh, I'm forgetting the actress's name right now, but how 
she had walked away from playing a role in the movie, a black actress, because she didn't find it authentic and et cetera, et cetera. And so I guess my question to you is twofold. One is, you know, what are the things that we do to activate our imagination so that it's full of possibilities in the way that racism, white supremacy, et cetera, et cetera, does not want it to happen. And two is, how do you respond to those claims of, but it's not authentic, which I think you raised earlier, but I'd love for you to underscore. Thank you. Katrina? Yeah, I mean, this is fiction. I don't really know. I don't really know how else to say that. Y'all writing fiction. Please write more fiction. Fiction. It's fiction. It's fiction. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to jump in here as an academic. Romance is rooted in fantasy. It started in fantasy. The first romances had dragons and sorcerers and magicians and people flying and people managing to run through forests naked and nobody ever doing anything to them. It's fantasy. So the imagination has always been a fundamental key to writing romance. Okay, so I'm coming back to my favorite book, Indigo. It took Miss Bev's imagination to write that book. No one else could have written that book. She imagined what Hester looked like. She imagined a relationship between Hester and Kevin. She took the Song of Solomon, rewrote it in that book, like my favorite, in order to give us a sense of what Black love is. Authentic, absolutely. Yeah. In the context of that book, that romance, everything is authentic. We need to stop trying to look outside of the romance narrative for authenticity. Look inside, because the moment you write fiction, I don't care whether you call it literary, genre, whatever, the moment you step into that book, the moment you walk on to that space in that landscape, it's authentic. Everything else outside doesn't matter. And I would say like two practical things in terms of like how you can activate your imagination. I think, you know, one of them, like I said before, is like read other authors who aren't doing that work. Like I actually love historical fiction. I do wish like there were AGAs, but what I love about historical fiction is that they manage to blend the historical research with, you know, a narrative, right, that really appeals to me. Those are sad, so they're maybe a little too close to the historical record, so it's not where I go when I want to feel uplifted, but, like, just read other books that are attempting to, like, do that work. But then I think the other thing is, I think people are, like, intimidated by the historical record itself, right? So it's as if doing the research tells them, okay, I haven't found this story, so it's not possible. And, but the point is that you haven't found the story, so you now create the possible. Yes. So you don't have to unmute yourself to ask a question. Feel free to drop it in the chat. In the meantime, I'll go to the second raised hand. Okay, here's my list. And uh, I want to ask a very short uh, question. Uh, I want to take our discussion to space of the future. 
And uh, I want uh, to ask you uh, how you see the future of uh, black uh, romance. Uh, what uh, opportunities uh, uh, you expecting uh, for uh, black uh, romance uh, literature? Thank you. Ooh, I'll try. I think the future of black romance is driven by us, black writers, black readers, non-black readers of black romance. Black romance has been around forever, honestly, as long as people have been able to capture narratives of lives and love on the page. So I think one of the things that I would say is individuals need to stop depending on traditional publishers for it. I think that there are hybrid writers. I think there are self-published writers, brilliant people who are writing, and we need to do more elevation there. I, I think that's, for me, that's my answer. I'm kind of wedded to historical romance right now because Honestly, I take seriously Katrina's point about Miss Bed probably getting lonely. She needs more of us in that arena with her. And so I think there are ways we can do it. I think we're obligated to do it if that is our calling. And for me, that's my calling. Katrina, yeah, wanna, do you have an answer? No, I agree with you. I don't have to have. Okay. <laughs> you're, are you unmuted? Yes. Sorry. Hi, Genia. How are you? How are you? Anyway, my question is precisely on this point. I was so struck by the beginning of the conversation that Professor Hendricks, Professor Jackson, that you both problematized Miss Beth's prominence in a fruitful way. I mean, you know, huge fan. I've read entire backlist. I'm working on my doctoral dissertation, and she's very central to it. So, so life giving for. So many of us gathered here, and yet that she is the only one. I'm hoping if you can maybe just speak more about, you mentioned, I think, you know, traditional publishing, that's a sign of their lack of investment. You also mentioned somewhat how authors are loath to take up kind of a historical lens because of the fear or the discomfort with slavery. But yeah, if you could just speak more to that would be helpful of what you see is the, why she is the only one still, thank you. Um, you know what, one, well, I think, okay, so I'm going old on you. I think it's generational in, in some instances in terms of the complicated relationship to enslavement in this country, because I think, and just, just naturally that the possibility of independent Black characters inside and outside of the historical narratives constructed within white supremacy need to be wrested from the white gaze in order for us to do justice to their narratives and to their traditions. But we need to understand those narratives and those traditions before we can rest them. I'm going to speak to me and then I'll shut up. I've been doing familial research for a memoir. And discovering a lot about a, the great uncle whose father was enslaved, who at the end of, during Reconstruction, at the end of Reconstruction, moved to California, established a home, et cetera, and brought siblings out. 
I have, I had a couple of great uncles who were born enslaved and, you know, next year they were free. So I'm thinking about, and he married a woman, he was capable of passing. He married a woman who is as black as I am. And there were just, there was discomfort about that because the expectation was assimilation, integration, move on up. They managed to move up without changing anything. That's a romance I want to write. So I have to do the work to construct that romance. I think we need to figure out how best to use the research that's available to us, that historians, cultural, political, social, economic, have laid out for us for years, as well as thinkers to write these narratives. We can't be afraid to write these narratives. I think that's the most important thing that I've learned from this day. We can't be afraid to write these narratives. We need to not center the white gaze. Well, I think that's gonna be our first success when we decenter that. That's my opinion. I agree with all that. I think I, when you said generational, I thought you were gonna go a different way. So I'll just add to that. There did used to be other Black writers who wrote historical romances. Steve Amidown, like taught me some of this as well, but I believe her name is Elsie Washington. Yes. So there did used to be romance authors, Black romance authors who were writing historical, not only historical romance, but, you know, a standalone here, there, et cetera. And what I think we have seen is the lack of support from their publishers for more. Mm -hmm. I think Ms. Bev is a case that I have not seen elsewhere where not yes. only are we seeing the support from a publisher, but the same publisher through throughout her career I think that is I mean she's here we could ask if that's correct but and she, I, like, yeah. from, from my professional opinion it seems as if like that has been what has led to the longevity of her career is that she yeah. has had consistent support from a single publisher that has allowed for her to build this catalog that other yes. Black authors could not and then I would also agree that there have been changes in writers where what we are now seeing, there, there did also used to be other Black romance authors who have moved away from historical romance, either to just contemporary or to IR or to historical fiction, because either publishers or readers were hostile to their inclusion of Black people in historical narratives. Ms. Bev, are you able to speak? I think so. Can you hear okay. me? Okay. Yes, you yes. can hear. Okay. I just want to thank you and Katrina and Dr. Margot up there and Dr. Katrina, I should be, you know, just thank you. This has been a great way to start my Saturday morning. And yes, I would love to see more Black writers doing Black historical romance. I worry because I'm not seeing a lot of stories focused on us, on a black couple. And I'm not sure why that is, but you gotta do the work. You have yeah. to do the work. And it's not that hard. I mean, the more you read the history, the easier the imagination becomes. Indigo started with that two sentence. I knew a man named Wyatt who was free, who you know, sold yeah. himself into slavery for the love of a woman. Yes. I mean, if that doesn't get your imagination started, I'm not yes. sure what will. Yes. But I just want to say thank you. I want to thank you for supporting my work. I want to thank you for supporting the history. And just thank you for your scholarship. You guys are awesome. All right, I'm out.
<laughs> Thank you. All right. Can you speak? Yeah. And first of all, thank you for this wonderful presentation. And my question is about how to create a woman character that don't fit into the stereotypes of idealized women or the sexualized object, how to create an independent woman bone to historical reference of black communities. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Whoa, good question. For me, what I try to do is to understand the nature of the socioeconomic moment that I'm writing about. In the 16th century, many of the Black peoples who came to England, some voluntarily, some came over as servants, not enslaved but as servants. Some came as enslaved children, effectively, and then were liberated once they were no longer cute. They had skills. They grew up in communities of weavers, of uh, of jewelry makers, of iron workers, of all kinds of, you know, some of them were scholars and knew Arabic and Hebrew. And they found ways to turn those skills into a living. They would be mentioned and you would read their names because they adopted English names and you would automatically assumed they were white unless there was some indication that this person was a black boy, that this person was a Negro, this person was a Moor. You kind of have to, for me, I rely heavily on Imtiaz's book, Black Lives in the English Archives, 1560 to 1690 or something. I rely on the level of research that he did to give me that documentation, but I also did archival work. Not everybody can do that, but there are books that will tell you, you know, about the lives. So imagine not writing an aristocrat. Imagine writing a well-to-do merchant, someone who trades with African nations, who becomes valuable to a community, both their own and the larger community, because they have contacts back home, because presumption is those who are lost. To write a woman who is not sexualized in this day and age is, in my opinion, a, a mistake. There's no reason for us to omit a woman's sexuality. This is one of the problems. We create this virginal standard of beauty and etc. Come on. It's okay for a man to be sexual, not okay for a woman to be sexual. Let's not buy into this idea that there, there's always this either or, and that if we represent Black women, brown women, Asian women's sexuality, that it always has to be measured against white women's sexuality, which is a construct, an absolute construct. So I would look into some of the women who had their own shops, ran their own businesses, widows, you know, mother and daughter. There are, there's, there, there are representations out there for us to draw upon. And their stories exist and we know it. We can see it throughout history. In terms of widow, you know, Jones, who ran her own shop, happened to be a white woman, and people were right about that. Well, what about widow Smith, black woman, who also ran her own shop and her own hotel and so on? Again, I, I mean, I got to come back to Miss Beth. She 
did her work because she gave us women who were independent, striving to be independent, fiercely independent. It's not hard to write them. It really isn't. Yeah, I want to echo that. I also want to echo Tasha in the chat pointing out that this is just a simply a craft issue, right? If you can write a well-crafted white character, you can write a well-crafted Black female character. There's nothing particularly distinct about Black people that makes it difficult to write us well without, like, without falling into stereotype. I would also say for the historical time period, like some of the way that you can sure you're being... Um, you're writing a believably deep character is as Miss Bev said to do the work, right? So you should be reading in the time period. If you're interested in writing like a black woman in like, you know, a 19th century Jamaica, right? You should be reading not just books about black women. This is I think where people get stuck on the historical research. You should be reading books about black women in 19th century Jamaica. And then you should be reading sources from black women in 19th century Jamaica if they exist. Cause there's a difference, right? Like what scholars think about, you know, a particular time period is shaped by the kinds of primary sources they can access. But historians are not infallible, right? Like our ideas change as we learn how to read sources better. So it, that's reading in about the time period and then reading sources from the time period from people who fit the subjectivity you're writing about. Ms. Beth? Yeah, I just want to say, Crafting my characters, I like to incorporate the three gifts that Dorothy Sterling said Black women of the 19th century all had. The first one being, we worked, whether we were slave or free. The second was our commitment to community. And the third, which is probably the most valuable, is our penchant for pushing the envelope on gender and race. So if you wanna read, wanna create black female characters, then you need to read the history of what made these women so important, not only to our race, but to the country, because some of the black women were the first doctors here. So the three gifts, we worked whether we were slave or free, a commitment to community and community activism, I mean, you can read the stories about Black women chasing the slave catchers out of, out of their communities in the abolitionist North. And three, our pension for pushing the envelope on gender and race. Okay, I'm out. So we have one minute left. Conclusions? So I guess I'm gonna, so there is a bibliography that we attach to this for just generally speaking, like if you're interested in history. And I will say that I told Mark, I told Elizabeth not to judge me because like I'm a historian, I'm interested in books. And every time someone's like, no one has ever in their life ever studied this thing. Do a little bit more research. But here's what I would say, especially if you want to write a his Black historical romance and you just aren't sure where to start. And then also I saw someone say that like they didn't learn a lot in school. So they are, they feel uncomfortable with the history. So start reading, start reading. I'm going to thank Katrina for playing with me this morning. And as you can see her, I just love her mind. And thank you so much. Thank you, Julie, for doing and making this possible. Thank the Center for Black Diaspora for supporting my moments of, ooh, I'd like to do this. <laughs>
<laughs> You're wonderful. I want to say this is just a start. This is not an end. We are seriously encouraging writers in the room, readers in the room to support, encourage, push for Black historical romances that center Black love, Black community, Black families, Black conditions, whatever they may be, and know that our people have always found joy no matter the obstacles. They've always found love no matter the obstacles. They worked for community and they loved. And if nothing else, that's what you want to tell. That's the story you want to tell. So I'm done. I appreciate <laughs> you both, Marco, and I appreciate you also, Katrina. Thank you all for getting up early this morning to be with us. Thanks to the Dean's Office in the College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences here at DePaul University. And on behalf of the Center for Black Diaspora, we're done. Thank you for attending. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app or tell a friend. Check out shelflovepodcast.com for transcripts and other resources. Or you can find me at shelflovepod on Twitter or at shelflovepodcast on Instagram. Or you can always email me at andrea at shelflovepodcast.com. If you want to join the conversation about the topics that we discuss on Shelf Love, I'd encourage you to check out Shelf Love's Patreon at patreon.com slash shelflove. Thank you to Shelf Love's $20 a month supporters, Gail, Copper Dog Books, Frederick Smith, and John Jacobson. See your name listed as a Patreon supporter on the Shelf Love website if you join at any level. That's patreon.com slash shelflove. Breaking news, there is now a $1 tier on the Shelf Love Patreon, and that's called Here for the Discourse. So if you are bummed out about the destruction of Twitter, let's just be honest, I was going to say social media. It's just Twitter. I'm trying to get off Twitter. If you're trying to get off Twitter, but you think that you are going to miss Romance Discourse, please consider joining the Shelf Love Patreon because you are here listening to a Shelf Love episode. If you are an avid Shelf Love listener and you want to take part in the conversation on the Shelf Love Discord, but $1 a month is out of range for you, please reach out to me, Andrea at shelflovepodcast.com. I do not want it to be a barrier to entry for people who are truly fans. I don't really want it to be a free-for-all where anybody can join. But if you're a listener, this is literally the place I created for you. I do not want you to feel like money is a barrier to you joining the conversation. Please let me know. I can add you to the Discord. That's all for today. Thanks so much. Bye.